The sermon title this morning is Anatomy of Unbelief. The word anatomy describes the study of the inner workings of things, the structures that happen inside something. The anatomy of unbelief. I would argue, and I think we can make a clear biblical case, that the root of every sin is unbelief. From the very beginning, Satan didn't believe that worshiping God was good enough. Adam and Eve didn't believe that what God's words said were were true. Throughout our lives, every sin we commit is a result of the areas we do not believe God. When we are greedy, we do not believe that God will provide for our every need. When we lust, we don't believe that the pleasures of following God exceed the pleasures of our flesh. When we're angry, we don't believe that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We don't believe that our God is a righteous judge and we want to take things in our own hand. We go on and on and on. And we're going to see this morning especially how unbelief is ultimately a rejection of God. And we're going to see it in this interchange between the healed man and the Jews. Another thing we're going to see is that unbelief typically has a committed set of presuppositions. If you don't know what that word means, it means something that you agree to before you even begin your thought process. Something that you presuppose. I'm coming to the table with these set of ideas, and they're going to govern everything I do and everything I think about. I'll give you some examples. When you speak to people who say, there is no God. Since they start with a presupposition that there is no God, everything else in their lives is directed from that presupposition. Since there's no God, this can't be true, and this can't be true, and this can't be true. Other presuppositions that may not be as obvious. God can only work in a way that I understand. And so since God has to fit into my little pea brain, because I can't understand this, this can't be true. Or Jesus can't be who the Bible says he is. He must be someone else, so I can't believe the Bible. Unbelief does not appreciate the truth, does not seek out the truth. It holds on to its presuppositions so tightly. And in this case this morning, when this man who had been healed by Jesus the Messiah faces Jews who are committed to saying Jesus is not the Messiah, that presupposition is unshakable to them. And we're going to see this morning, just as someone will go to great lengths to believe what they want to be true, They will also go to the same lengths to not believe something that they don't want to be true. This passage this morning is going to be a great case study of those who reject Christ and what goes on in the minds and hearts of those who are committed to unbelief, who are committed to their presuppositions. Uh, So without further ado, we're going to start reading. I'm going to read this in context. We're spending three weeks on this this narrative and putting this together, it's very difficult to figure out where to split this up. I want to give it the the proper time that it deserves. And so there's going to be some overlap here. And so I'm going to start reading in verse eight. I'm going to read through uh, to verse 34. But our focus this morning is verses 13 to 29. So John 9, 8 says, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. 
So they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say has been born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, well, we know that this is our son and that he is born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents says, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether, this, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered him, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and would teach us, and they cast him out. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you today. We know that apart from you, we can do nothing. And apart from your sovereign hand, nothing is possible. Nothing is outside of your reach. Nothing catches you off guard. You create and sustain all things. You're worthy of all glory and all praise. Yet this world that daily rejects you, shakes its fist at you and hates you, is where you've left us. And as your people, let us be a shining light in the midst of an unbelieving world. Let us be unshaken in the midst of unbelief. Let us be undeterred by the lies and accusations and interrogations of those who hate you and want to suppress the truth. 
Lord, I pray this morning that your word would challenge us, would convict us, would inform us. Help us to grow in our knowledge of you and be secure in our beliefs. And anyone here who is struggling with their own beliefs, that your Holy Spirit would would convict them and would root them out. And that you would teach us to take every thought captive to Christ. And know that we can believe you, trust your promises, because you are faithful. And we are unfaithful. Thank you for your grace and mercy for saving us and opening our eyes. Thank you for the continued work in our lives. Just pray that you get all the glory and all the honor and all the praise this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's kind of set the stage. I remember what we talked about last week. We saw Jesus heal this blind man. And then there's an argument that goes on. The people... They're in disagreement. And whenever there's a disagreement, instead of trusting in the obvious work of God, there's an appeal to human authority. And here's where we find ourselves, because they can't agree. Instead of searching the scriptures, instead of praising God for what happens, they're going to appeal to a human authority. And we're going to see a series of interrogations here. And we're going to see some aspects of unbelief that take place in these interrogations. Starting in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees. Uh, before we go any further, this word brought, uh, again, so many times the English does not do the Greek justice. This word is not just they, they brought them. It's a forceful leading. They, I don't know if I will go as far as saying dragged, but this man probably did not have a choice. We're going to bring this matter to the Pharisees so they can decide your fate, so they can really make a determination here. So the first thing we're going to see about unbelief is that even when faced with the undeniable, the blind man now sees unbelief will seek out human authority and human confirmation instead of giving glory to God. So they brought him to the Pharisees. Before we go any further, um, there's a, a small part of me I have to confess to you guys. I wish John Williams, if you don't know the composer John Williams, he wrote for Star Wars and... and um, that's pretty, that's pretty uh, specific, yes. I, I was going to say Indiana Jones and stuff people would know, but yes, Close Encounters. And So I wish John Williams would compose for this. Because every time the, the Pharisees come on, I want the Imperial Death March to come in. And if you don't know the Imperial Death March, it's like when Darth Vader shows up in, in, all, of his, in all of his soldiers and it's just dark and ominous. Every time I see the word Pharisees, no, I can't do it. I'm tone deaf as it is, and then with, with my voice, it's just going to be flat. So... Google Imperial Death March later. <laughs> All right, enough of that. So they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. And now here's the, the first of two uh, parenthetical statements here, meaning that John is interrupting the narrative to kind of tell you a detail of what happened before. So there should almost be parentheses around this. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So there's... An issue here, and we saw this back in chapter 5. Jesus healed the crippled man, and they complained about Jesus' work on the Sabbath. They weren't celebrating that a man who was broken is made whole. They weren't celebrating the man who was blind can now see. They're critiquing Jesus' use of the Sabbath. And in the minds of the Pharisees, making mud was work. Healing a man was work. And so any work done on the Sabbath to them was a sin in their own understanding. 
But Jesus told us in chapter 5, when they accuse him of working on the Sabbath, he says, my father is working up until this day, and I am working. And the work of Jesus on the Sabbath is teaching and mercy. So that's an important contrast here, because what Jesus saw important enough to do on, on the Sabbath, the Pharisees ridiculed and critiqued. But he did nothing but the work of the father on the Sabbath. And so that's where the Pharisees are. They're very uptight in holding up their own laws. Verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. This is an important note here. Because they had already heard. I'm sure word, word spread. But the how. Everyone always gets hung up on the how. No one congratulated him. No one said, praise the Lord, you can see. No one is excited. Everyone's like, how? Explain this to me. Tell me more. They only were concerned with investigation and, and how this happened. And this is another important barrier to faith. The how. People are always concerned with the how. Because I can't fit it into my brain. My presupposition is God must make 100% sense to me. So if I don't understand the how, I can't believe. Things like we tell people God created the earth. Someone will always say, well, how is that possible? I can't understand a God who could create the earth. Or God took on flesh and walk among us. How is that possible? Or our God is Father, Son, and Spirit, but we don't worship three gods. How is that possible? So often people get hung up on the how. Or most importantly, put your faith in the resurrected Christ and you will have eternal life. But how do I know if that's really the truth? And so often for many people, their search for explanation leads them to miss the answer. Follow what I'm saying here. There's an obsession with an explanation that really is not concerned with an answer. Most people don't want an answer, but an explanation. Make this make sense to me. Don't give me an answer. Tell me what I want to hear. So many people are so focused on the magnifying glass and trying to analyze every little thing that they don't look up enough to see the big picture. They don't look up enough to see what's right in front of them. This is what's going on here. They're trying to critique every detail, but they're missing the miracle. They're missing the sign of Christ. So the Pharisees again said to him, asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So their false piety put the Sabbath above the work of God. Even the things of God can become an idol before God himself. You can place things that God institutes and make them more important than God himself. And then they create a false syllogism here. So this is a tool we're going to use a little bit in this this message. And if you don't know what a syllogism is, is it's a proposal where you take two premises or two presuppositions, two predetermined ideas, and from them you create a, a conclusion. A good syllogism would be all people are created in the image of God. You are a person. You are created in the image of God. You have one, one premise, second premise, and a conclusion that comes from that. That's a good syllogism, and it's consistent. A bad syllogism would be 
All elephants have ears. You have ears, therefore you are an elephant. Bad syllogism. This, we're going to see, is a bad syllogism here for a moment because here's the syllogism that they introduce. Well, all godly men keep the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't keep the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus is not a godly man. So they work through a process in themselves based in their own tightly held presuppositions that lead them to say Jesus is not a godly man. But what's wrong here? Their version of Sabbath keeping is not what scripture's version of Sabbath keeping is. They added more burdens onto the law. And Jesus has the most perfect, proper application of Sabbath keeping. And they completely miss it because they're obsessed with their own version of the law. So both of their premises are wrong. Therefore, their conclusion is wrong. But even the Pharisees can't agree. So some of them say that this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others say, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Now, this is a more thoughtful, appropriate syllogism. Because the other Pharisees are reasoning amongst themselves, thinking sinners cannot perform true works of God. This man is healed, which is a true work of God. Therefore, Jesus cannot be a sinner if he does true works of God. And the way they're using sinner here is someone who practices sin. They don't understand that he's infallible. But uh, So there's corrupted thinking, and then there's, there's some right thinking here, and this leads to a division among unbelief. Another mark of unbelief we're going to see is that even unbelief can't get on the same page. Unbelief tries to, tries to corral everyone to get them to agree with their own tightly held convictions, but they can't because lies will never agree with one another. And then there's a great irony that happens here in verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? The irony here is that the previously blind one is being asked by the presently blind ones what he saw. And you've got these experts who would normally never even speak to someone like him. He wouldn't even be worth their their breath. And they are so perplexed that they have to ask him his opinion. And the the irony is great here. And, And his response is a fair one. He said he's a prophet. He's growing in understanding. He's growing in faith. And from what he understands, at the very least, this man is a prophet. At the very least, he is from God. And we're going to see that his belief is going to grow. So verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and received his sight. They didn't even believe the the, the account. They didn't believe this man. They didn't believe anything that they heard. Unbelief will seek to discredit the facts. Unbelief will attack the truth, even if it is staring them in the face. This man must be a liar. Because he does not agree with our presuppositions. There is no way that our idea of Sabbath keeping is wrong. There is no way that Jesus is not the liar and the sinner and the fake that we think he is. We can't believe what's standing right in front of us. They are holding out hope until they speak to this man's parents. Here's the other thing about unbelief. Unbelief is a hope. You are hoping that your presuppositions are true. You want something to be be true so bad 
In Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, you know, hope is the conviction of things not, not seen. And, and they're hoping in things they can't see, things they don't know to be true. They're putting their hope in it. And it shows us that everyone has faith in something. They have faith in what they are so tightly held to. They want things to be untrue so bad that even what's staring them in the face, and even when they can't deny it, they, they, they double down. So the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind and how does he now see? This is three rapid fire questions here. Is this really your son? Was he really born blind? And how does he now see? And the interrogation begins, and they, they respond pretty quickly to, to two of them. His parents answered, well, we know that this is our son. Hopefully they can get that one right. And we, we do know um, that he was born blind. Hopefully they know that one. Um, and so that would be enough to relieve some of the unbelief. But unbelief is going to be undeterred here. And sadly, they're going to punt on the third question. And they're going to say, but how he now sees, we do not know. Pay attention here. Look look what they say. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Oh, we we don't know. We don't know how he now sees. We don't know who opened his eyes. They know the how and, and the who. The fact that they said how his eyes were opened and who opened his eyes gives an insight to what they actually know. But out of their their fear and their pressure from outside, they punt on the most important question. Their son, who'd been born, born blind and been blind his entire life, now sees. Think about how unbelief motivates the way they respond. And, and I was thinking about this week. How often do we punt on the most important questions? How often when we're faced with the easy ones, we'll answer them. When it comes down to declaring the the truth, which may be difficult, which may hurt relationships. We'll take the easy route or we'll lie or we'll say, I don't know. But what happens and what we'll, we'll see here is trying not to take a side. They end up taking a side. By not speaking the truth, by not standing up for their son, they have stood with the Jews against their, their son. And John tells us why here. Uh, they, they, they say, you know, he's, he's of age. He'll speak for himself. Ask him. And here's another parenthetical statement. They put parentheses here. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. The Jews had already agreed. This uh, agreement here paints a picture in the original language of people coming together for a purpose. There's an agreed meeting, and then there's a, a degreed, or excuse me, agreed departure in agreement. The Jews had come together and they had made this agreement together that if anyone confesses Jesus to be the Christ, he's going to be put out of the synagogue. It's, it's helpful to understand what it means to be put out of the synagogue. So the synagogue is the center of Jewish life. If you are a Jew, everything revolves around the, the, the gathering of the Jewish people. Not just worship, your livelihood, your 
your ability to to trade, to, to interact. If you're put out of, of the synagogue, your entire life is turned upside down. And this is how scared the Pharisees were. Not just the parents, but the Jews were so frightful of Jesus that they wanted to banish anyone who would declare him to be the Christ. Now, I, I wanted to bring this up because I think this is important. Um, I heard someone say, someone asked, um, what is what does Jesus Christ mean or what does Christ mean? And I heard someone say, uh, is that his last name? No, it's not his last name. I think it's, it's important here to make a distinction between Jesus and the Christ. So the Son of God existed for all times with the Father and the Spirit. But when taking on flesh, he took on a human name, Jesus. The Messiah is not a, his, his last name or an extension of his name. The Messiah is a title. The, title, the, the, the Messiah is the anointed of God, the, the one that the, the Jews had been looking for. So it is connecting Jesus with all of the Old Testament prophecies, all the Old Testament expectations for a Messiah. So it is a bold statement to say that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one of God. He's the one that we've been waiting for. And that undermines this entire religious monopoly that has been going on with the Jews up until this point. And if you confess that Jesus is the Christ, you are put out of the synagogue. It's literally unsynagogued. You will be excommunicated from Jewish life. You're not just kicked out of the synagogue. You're ostracized from everything related to the nation of Israel. This is a big deal. This was too big of a price for his parents, for someone they didn't believe in. If it was standing up for their, their son, confessing Christ, or keeping their, their, their status in the nation, they chose the latter. And the reality is for many believers around the world, this is still the reality. This is, this is so true today, probably more true today than it has ever been in history. There are dozens literally dozens of countries around the world where the predominant view of Christians is if you profess Christ publicly, it is at, at minimum illegal. There can be fines, there can be jail time, at worst a capital offense. They will kill you for the name of Christ. And it happens every day around the world. Shree uh, just finished reading a book by Rifka Berry. I don't know if you guys have followed this story, but um, a young Muslim woman grew up in a Muslim family in, in Sri Lanka, uh, and they moved to Ohio. Yes, this happens in nations all over the world, but living in Ohio as a young girl, just beaten, abused, sexually molested by her family, um, and the list goes on and on and on, and it was a horrendous ordeal that this girl goes through. And as a teenager, she meets other believers and gets invited to church and sees things and hears things that she had never heard in her whole life. And at 16 years old, gives her life to Christ. And most 16-year-old girls were trying to sneak out to meet boys or go to parties. This girl's sneaking out trying to go to Bible study. And her life is threatened when her parents find out. Her father tells her, I'm going to kill you unless you, unless you um, turn back to Islam. And this girl went through a long ordeal as a teenager to be separated from her family in Ohio. 
This is not the only story like it. She left her entire family behind. Everything was taken from her for the name of Christ. She left with the clothes on her back and, and she had a great church family that, 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 that supported her and moved her from house to house and, 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 and hid her and protected her through this whole thing. I read another account of a woman named, named Helen, uh, who in a, a, an East African country for professing Christ, the, their preferred torture is to throw you in a shipping container, those big shipping containers that they, they put on boats for two years. She said it was well over 110 degrees there in the daytime and freezing at, at night. They kept, they gave her just enough food and just enough water to keep her alive for two years and continually telling her, reject Christ, reject Christ. And to hear her tell about it, she thanked God for the sores and the blisters when her hands were burned on the sheet metal. She thanked God for the sleepless nights when it was freezing. She thanked God for him drawing her closer uh, to, to him through this entire experience. And you, 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 you hear this, like, man... Can I let go of everything for the name of Christ? Can I be completely ostracized from everything I know? Can I be tortured for years for Christ? And you look at stories, countless stories of brave men and women throughout the ages who, when your eyes have truly been opened, when you have truly been, been given new life, nothing the world can do to you can separate you from the love of Christ. So then I had to think about myself. How often have I been guilty of the same thing? How often have I missed the opportunity to declare Christ and avoid owning him, avoid standing up for the name of Jesus because it was more advantageous to my friends or my boss or my family or even perfect strangers? Strangers are probably the, the, the hardest one because this whole conversation goes on in, in your mind. Like, I'm never going to see this person again. It's just easier just to, to, to keep things moving and not actually have a conversation. And I thought about how often I've been ashamed with myself because I've missed an opportunity to declare Christ or just silently not declare the name of Jesus or even defend Christ when I had the opportunity to. And no one knows but, but, but me. I know it's hard for you to picture me being silent on anything, but yes, it, it, it happens. Um, and it made me think about the fear that drives unbelief. The fear of the Pharisees about being found out. The fear of the parents for being found out, for being put out of the culture. Because they knew the repercussions of, conf of confessing Christ. And how much does fear drive us? So after John gives his explanation, he said, therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? He's telling that the whole reason they said ask him was because they were afraid, not because they didn't know. John lets us inside of what's going on here, and he repeats it for emphasis. So for a second time, they, the Pharisees, called the man. And just to let you know, like, this is not a normal call. 
This is not, hey, come here, bring, bring the nice man over here. This is a summons. This is crying out loud. Bring him over here. Not let's talk, talk to this nice man. Bring that man over here who said he was blind. Bring that man over here who confessed that Jesus was a prophet. This is crying out loud. This is speaking in a way that gets everyone's attention. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, and this is not a nice statement, give glory to God. This statement basically means tell the truth. We know you're a liar. Give glory to God. Don't take glory. Don't give glory from God to someone else. And the, the heart there is, is true. Give glory to God. God should get the glory for this. But what they can't understand is that both can be true at the same time. That God gets the glory and Jesus is not a sinner, but a man sent from God to do the work of God. And they definitely could understand that he was God himself. But what they're really saying here is give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. They're saying we know the truth and we dare you to disagree with us. Give God the glory. God agrees with us. It's another aspect of unbelief. It's that unbelief wants God to agree with it. Unbelief wants God to serve it. Wants God to be made in its image. This is another false syllogism based on false presuppositions. Now it's been confirmed. They've seen that the man has been born blind. We, they know that he's seen, and he's declared who healed him. Yet they are so committed to their presupposition. They are so committed to what they bring to the table, they will not be shaken. Jesus cannot be the hero of this story. Jesus cannot be greater than us. We cannot be wrong. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. There is Unbelief is so committed here. There is no wavering in, in their voice. They are all in for their position. I love this guy. I love how he responds, and it, it, it gets better as we go. He answered, whether he's a sinner, uh, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This is, this is a, a, a smart guy. It, he's, he's right. I mean, he doesn't know much about Jesus at the time. But he knows enough not to step into their trap. But he is confident. Well, you guys can figure out whether he's a sinner or not. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. And just like that man, those of us in Christ who've had our eyes open, we can say, I know that I was blind and now I see. But we take it a step further because we know that man. We know he's not a sinner. And we know the only reason he can open our eyes is because he never sinned. We know that only a perfect, spotless lamb could die on the cross and reconcile us to God. We know that man. That man opened our eyes. And we see him in, in, in full glory. But bless this man who trusts with so little information. And all the information we have, would we be as bold as this man? Because he's going to get more bold. And I love that about him. Well, they said, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Another thing unbelief will do, it will badger you until you agree with it. 
Well, tell us again. Tell us again. Let me, let me hear you say this again to see if you will trip yourself up. This is where it gets good. He answered them. And I, and I, I get angry when, when, when people try to, to downplay um, the, the great interplay that happens here or take sarcasm and try to make it nice. No, th- th- this guy's being purely sarcastic and I love it. He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. More irony here. I, I, I love this. Um, I told you already. I was blind. What's your excuse? I told you, like, will you not listen? Like, do, do your ears not work? I know my eyes didn't work, but do your ears not work? I have told you already, and you would not listen. This is a blind beggar telling these religious leaders, would you not listen? This is, this is great. Um, <laughs> But they wouldn't listen. And it wasn't because they didn't have enough evidence. It wasn't because someone didn't prove their, their point well enough. I love what Ravi Zacharias says about this. He says, man rejects God not because of intellectual demands nor scarcity of evidence, but a moral resistance that refuses to admit his need for God. Man rejects God not because of intellectual demands nor scarcity of evidence, but a moral resistance that refuses to admit his need for God. It's exactly what he said. And you would not listen. You won't listen because you are morally resistant to the truth. The evidence is standing right in front of you. Your problem is not lack of evidence. It is lack of belief. Then he goes on, and this is where he kind of sticks the knife in and twists it. He says, I have told you already you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Oh, man. There is nothing more offensive that you could say to him. Oh, do you want to become his disciples? And I don't, I don't think he was saying this nicely. I, I think he was saying, oh, why are you asking again? Do you want to become his, his disciples? I think he knows that, that this is going to drive them crazy. This is the most cultis, uh, condescending, insulting um, thing they could hear. And they come back with the most condescending, insulting thing that they can come back with. And they revile him saying, you are his disciple. That's, their, that's the best they had for an insult. This finger pointing, you are his disciple. And they puff up their chest and say, we are disciples of Moses. But they go on. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So they, there's, there's a mistake that happens a lot of time in the lives of believers. When we're reading the Bible and we see God in the Old Testament interacting with, with, with Moses, we only assume that it's, that it's God the Father. Let's go back to, to Theology 101. God the Father is eternally God. God the Son is eternally God. God the Spirit is eternally God. God spoke to Moses face to face. Here's another syllogism. Jesus is God. Jesus spoke to Moses face to face. And so the irony again here is that they hold to Moses and that God spoke to him. Well, the God that spoke to him took on flesh and will be speaking to them next week. And they deny it because unbelief doesn't care about the truth. Unbelief does not want to get to the bottom of it. 
Unbelief will not consider who Jesus is really. Only that he cannot be what he appears to be. Because they're committed to their own blindness. The last thing unbelief is going to do, and we'll see this next week, is unbelief is going to cast him out of the synagogue. And I believe that is physical, and it is probably political as well. So unbelief from the very beginning is going to interrogate this man and, and his family. And when he and his response next week, we're going to spend more, more time on it. They're going to cast him out. So unbelief will punish anyone who disagrees or threatens their position. Unbelief must suppress any dissension. Because if you are standing on shaky ground, you can't have anyone threatening that at all. So how do we conclude this morning? Uh, Don't be discouraged or um, deterred by unbelief. I talked to a lot of you about dealing with those who have doubts, who, who, who have unbelief, and you wrestle with and get frustrated with why someone won't believe. Um, as we've seen, unbelief is governed by presuppositions that are, held, that are tightly held, and it's governed by, by fear. But we are spiritual people who see spiritual things. So our job is to be just like this man, declare that I was blind and now I see, declare the truth of Jesus as the Christ, the risen Savior who has brought us to new life. And don't worry about unbelief. We stand on the truth of who Christ is. But I also want to challenge us because a lot of times we think about unbelief from without. What about the unbelief within? What about for each one of us who lets unbelief and fear get in the way of what is staring you in the face? What we know to be true in Scripture, what we have seen proven time and time again, yet we continue to doubt. We continue to be governed by our own unbelief. Does your unbelief lead you to doubt God, to not trust him and ultimately sin against him? Because God cannot be good enough, cannot be big enough, cannot be strong enough to fulfill his promises in you that he has fulfilled in his people from the very beginning. So as always, believe like this man did. Believe and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the risen Lord, and believe that he can and he will heal you from your blindness, from your fear and unbelief. Believe it because you have nowhere else to go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You sent your son for us. If it were not for your spirit, we would still be like these Jews. Who would doubt you and revile you with every fiber of our being. And you knew this. And while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. We would never die for a righteous person. But he died for the ungodly. And it is not our goodness or our understanding or our sight that brings us to you, but our brokenness and our begging and pleading 
a broken and contrite spirit. Lord, break us in the areas where unbelief has, has set in. Expose the areas where we do not trust you. Help us to boldly stand in the name of Jesus Christ and declare the name of Jesus Christ and to stand and say, I am, I've been blind, but now I see. And it is Christ who has worked this in me. And in you is hope and comfort and security and identity and life everlasting. We praise you for your grace and your mercy toward us. In Jesus' name we pray.